Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. Uh, today, I'm very excited that we have a guest with us, Eric Lipscomb, who's going to come and preach. Uh, Eric is the campus minister at Reformed University Fellowship at, on the Columbia campus. Uh, so if there are any remaining undergraduates, uh, some of you will know him, but the bulk of our undergraduates uh, probably left in the last week or two. But if you've been part of Emmanuel for the last few years, it's possible that you know who Eric is because he has preached here before. Uh, and in fact, he was ordained here when he first came to New York. And um, so he is no stranger to our church. He, he normally is with Redeemer Lincoln Square uh, at the bottom of Central Park. We're up at the top, but we're, uh, we're family and I'm very grateful that Eric uh, is with us to share this morning. So Eric, welcome. Thank you, Scott, and uh, it is great to be with you all. You know, the, the entrance here, I was reminded of, you know, the, uh, the Wizard of Oz, you know, don't, don't mind the man behind the curtain. Uh, it's kind of a funny way to come on. But, um, yeah, as, as Scott said, my name is Eric, and uh, I've worked with RUF uh, for the past eight years. Uh, and uh, we are one of Emmanuel's partners uh, in the neighborhood and in the city. And uh, I was just reflecting as I was coming here this morning uh, on on. Emmanuel and the impact that you've had in the city and you've had on me and on our campus. And I was just reminded of Paul's words in Philippians 1 where he says, you know, I thank God uh, for your partnership in the gospel. And uh, so when I think of Emmanuel, uh, I think of those words and, and just thankfulness wells up in my heart. So it's a pleasure for me uh, to be with you all today. And uh, I'm grateful that you're all here on this holiday weekend as well. So um, as we just heard in our scripture reading, uh, we're going to look in a moment uh, at Ephesians 1. Um, but I want to just uh, sort of try to set a little of the context for you for that. Um, what I think the project Paul is doing uh, in the book of Ephesians uh, is he's trying to set up for us uh, this sense of what is the community of the church uh, meant to be like? What is the church meant to be uh, about? And I think one of his main themes in this letter of the Ephesians, right, we're only going to look at uh, really the first, I guess, 11, or 11 of the first 14 verses, uh, is that the, the church, the, the community of, of God, um, is meant to be this sort of better community. But the work of love of Jesus creates a better community, right? And, and he calls this the church. And so there's this theologian, uh, he's an old British guy, uh, his name's John Stott, and he, he talks about Ephesians, he puts it this way. Here's what Ephesians is about. Ephesians is the gospel of the church. 
It sets forth God's eternal purpose to create, through Jesus Christ, a new society which stands out in bright relief against the somber background of the old world. For God's new society is characterized by life in the place of death, by unity and reconciliation in the place of division and alienation, by love and peace, uh, sorry, by love and peace in place of hatred and strife, and by unremitting conflict with evil in place of flabby compromise with it. Right now, if, if you've just tuned into the news uh, this past week, um, or any week for that matter, you, you, you know just the hurt and struggle um, going on as Scott prayed for uh, the, the shooting in Texas and, and how horrible and heartbreaking that is, and, and it keeps happening over and over again. Um, and the, the world needs many things, but, but one of the things I think Paul wants to say is the world needs the church being this better community. Right now, we, we have often failed in this calling, um, individually, collectively, um, but what we need is, is an outpost of heaven in the world, right? a place that looks more and more like the way the world God intends it to be. Right? That, that, that the church, together, we would be people who practice costly hospitality, who give to others generously, right? where this would be the place where you come and you experience both truth and grace, right? where, where you grow in maturity and you actually find and experience the full abundant life offered in Jesus Christ, right? That's what we mean, we mean better, not more exclusive, not, um, you know, more virtuous maybe even, um, but a better community, an outpost of heaven, right? And so community, though, can, can be this buzzword, right? If, if you've uh, been around, you've heard just, you know, community this, community that. Uh, what is a community? Most simply, it's just a people uh, who have something in common together, right? Now, that, that may be your neighborhood. You Maybe you live in Morningside Heights. Maybe you live in uh, Hamilton Heights, maybe you live in Washington Heights, whatever, whatever heights you live in, uh, you, that, that is your sort of your shared living space. Um, it may be a social club you're a part of, maybe you're in the same bowling league or the same vinyl appreciation group, I don't know. Uh, you know maybe you went to school together, right? You've had a common experience uh, that you share together. Um, or maybe it's your heritage or your sort of shared similar cultural background, right? You have something in common. Now, now here's what's interesting, Paul is writing to this group of people who at least on the surface have very little in common together. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out their communal identity. Right? They're in this port city, in this, the city of Ephesus, uh, Ephesus, and so there are all sorts of different people passing through this place. And the church that is sort of developed there by God's grace is this mix of Jewish and Gentile people. Right? They're, they're people who had otherwise would be pretty separate from one another. Uh, and, and, and maybe, the, again, to our modern ears, this doesn't sound like so, so you know, controversial or, or problematic, but um, the, the sort of the, the analogy I thought of was like, imagine you had brought together um, in the pre-civil rights South, right, a group of, of, of white Christians and black Christians to worship together, right? And, and so what God is doing by his grace here is beautiful, but it is also messy as they figure out what it's going to mean to belong together and worship together. And so they don't have much in common on the surface, but what do they have in common? Well, that's what Paul is going to remind them about here at the beginning of Ephesians, right? He says, what do we have in common? It doesn't look like we have a lot. We have different interests, different backgrounds. But the thing we have in common is the most important thing. We share together in the common story of God's eternal love for the world. Right? And that's what Paul gives us in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, right? The, the shared common story of God's love for the eternal, uh, his eternal love for the world. Right. Now, why would Paul start his letter out this way? Well, I sort of, I sort of think about it like this. Um, I have a favorite TV show of all time. 
Uh, it's called Arrested Development. It's on Netflix now. It's, it's a comedy. Uh, it just sort of demonstrates for you my level of maturity. Uh, but, but if you're not familiar with the show, it's basically about this, this very dysfunctional but loving family. Um, and the main character, his name is Michael, and he names his son George Michael. Uh, and in the pilot episode, they're, they're, they're trying to have, you know, Michael's there. He's trying to have this moment with his son. And they're in the, they're in the attic of their, uh, you know, their model home. It's, it's a long story. Um, but basically, Michael comes to his son. He says, son, what is it we've always said comes first? What comes before everything? What is most important? And George Michael very confidently says, breakfast. And Michael looks at his son. He says, family. <laughs> right? And George Michael says, oh, oh, family, right. I, th- I thought you meant of like the things we're supposed to eat, right? Like he sort of kind of backs off his very confident assertion just a moment before, right? All right now, why do, I, why do I bring this up? Right? I, I bring this up because I think there can sometimes be confusion about what is most important. Right? But Paul does not want there to be any confusion about what is most important. And so right off the bat, he puts it in front of the uh, church in Ephesus. He puts us in front of us. And it is this story. Right? And the reason he puts our story front and center, our story of the gospel front and center, is because this community that he was writing to, a mix of Jews and Gentiles, had used their stories to highlight their distinctiveness throughout their histories, right? They had, they had sort of isolated themselves and used their stories to, to tell their distinctive stories, what made us unique, what made us different from one another, right? And then they had sort of gathered themselves into groups that were similar, right? People who walked, talked, think, and acted in the same way. Right? And in some ways, we do similar things on our own, right? If you, if you think about any job you've ever applied to or if you've ever applied to school, you know, you, you've written essays, you've, you've submitted your cover letter, or your CV, or whatever it is, um, what do you do in that? Well, what you do is you tell your, uh, the person you're applying to about yourself, and you tell them what you've done. You tell them what makes you unique, what makes you different from everybody else, right? You use your story to distinguish yourself from all the other people and show how, in some subtle way, you're, you're better than they are, uh, and why you should be accepted or offered and not them, right? We, we use our stories to highlight our differences, to highlight our distinctiveness, right? But Paul's saying this story of the gospel is what we have in common. It ought to bring us together, right? And that doesn't mean your, your personal story or your unique experience is unimportant. It, it, it absolutely is, right? But Paul's saying what is most important Right, is, is this story of the gospel that we hold that is for you and is for me and is for us and it brings us together. And so the foundation of your identity personally and also our corporate life as the people of God together is this story of the gospel. Right, now, now maybe some of you heard uh, you know, Ephesians 3, 1, 3 through 14 and you thought, you know, that didn't sound like much of a story. Okay, fair enough. Uh, you know, it, it sounded more like 12 verses of religious jargon. Um, you know, where was the lead-in? Once upon a time. Well, what Paul is actually doing in these verses, if you look at the Greek, is that he is taking this one long, united, elegant sentence in Greek, and he's putting it before us. And he doesn't say, once upon a time, because he goes all the way back to before time began. Even before the foundation of the world, right, as verse 4 said, God chose us in him, that we should be holy and blameless, and he goes on and on. And so even before the foundation of the world, God had been at work bringing you to himself and bringing us together. Right? He's saying this is the, the foundation, the part of God's cosmic love story that you are caught up in, that we are caught up in together. Right? And it started not just at the beginning of time, but even before time began. And so what is the content of this story? 
Well, very briefly, I, I want to just take a closer look at our passage and just uh, summarize it in two sort of ways. I'd say very simply, first, the, the gospel is a story of blessing, uh, and the gospel is a story of belonging. And so that's what Paul puts before us in Ephesians 1. Uh, the gospel is a story of blessing, and it's a story of belonging, right? So first, it, it's a story of blessing, right? And, and, and if you were listening, you heard blessed repeated over and over again, particularly in the first couple of verses, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? And why has God done this? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, right? This is a story of blessing, right? Now, what does it mean that we are blessed, Right? Well, I think it's more than just a cheap turn of phrase, right? You know, something that gets th- slapped onto, uh, you know, a picture of your brunch when you post on Instagram, right? Oh, but this is amazing French toast, like hashtag blessed, right? Right, it, it is more than that. And, uh, and I, was, I was doing a little research, and apparently there's actually um, an anthropological definition of what it means to, to be blessed. And, and here's what they said. Uh, to be, to, or to bless someone. To bless someone is to see and to like that person, uh, to speak well of him or her, uh, and then to give away some of your life so that he or she might have more life, right? To, to see someone, to speak well of him or her, uh, and then to give away some of your life that he or she might have more life, right? And so, so let me just look at this a little bit, right? What does it mean to bless someone? It means to see them, right? Blessing starts with being seen, right? Now, if you've ever walked into uh, a new social setting um, or, or it's a public gathering where you don't know many people, right? Maybe the first time you walked into a new church or uh, a party or something like that, and you don't know people, what, what is it you're hoping for? Right? You're hoping that you don't just stand off in the corner awkwardly by yourself. You hope that somebody who is in the know and part of the group sees you and moves towards you. Right? They, they come up to you and they say, hey, welcome. I haven't met you before. My name's Eric. It's so great to see you. I'm so glad you're here. Right? They see you and they move toward you. Right? And, and if you've ever been in that situation, when that happens, how do you feel? Right? You feel blessed, Right? But someone saw you, they received you. They didn't, they didn't see you and like look away or ignore you. They saw you and moved towards you in, in care, in compassion. So blessing starts with being seen. Uh, but it also involves delighting in someone and speaking well of them, right? And, 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 and this makes sense. If you think about maybe the opposite of blessing, if you were to like curse someone, uh, you, uh, you know, you know I wish you weren't here. Uh, I hate your presence. I wish you would go away. Maybe the tamest cursing that's ever been done before. Uh, uh, but right, like, you know, the, the opposite of blessing would be to curse someone. Uh, the inverse would be to say, hey, Sam, I am so grateful you're here. Right? Having you here enriches our community. We value your presence. We long for you to be here. We, are so, we miss you when you're not here. Right? Blessing is, is seeing. It is, it is naming, delighting in a person, speaking well of them. And then it's also giving away some of your life so that you can have more life. Um, one of my favorite things about coming here when I worship at Emmanuel is there are so many young children. And uh, I have two little kids of my own. And uh, for those of you who have young children or maybe you've had young children or you just see the young children around, um, you know that the parents of young children um, are giving away a lot of their life. Right? Now, now, children are, are, it's funny with college students, they, you know, they love our, our kids, which I'm so grateful for. They see the fun, they see the cuteness. Uh, they don't always see all the, 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 the work that goes on behind the scenes, right? Um, but as a parent, what do you do when you have young children? Right? You give away your freedom, you give away your energy, you give away your privacy. <laughs> you give away your life so that your child or so that your children can have more life. 
And so when you understand what blessing is, then I think we can begin to start to see how much Paul wants to convince us that we have been blessed by the triune God of the universe. And it's actually woven straight into the structure of our passage, right? This blessing from God, Paul says in verses 3 through 6, it has been planned by God the Father. Right? God's blessing for you has been planned by the Father. It has been accomplished through God the Son in verses 12, uh, 7 through 12. And then it is applied to each of us and us collectively by the Holy Spirit in verses three, uh, 13 through 14. Right? He's saying the Father plans, the Son accomplishes and the Holy Spirit applies this blessing to us, right? And so the Father plans it, right? That, that since before you were born, since the, before the world began, right? There is just this intentional language, intentional language reigned throughout the passage, right? God chose, right? He predestined, right? He has a plan and purpose in all that he does in verses 10 through 11, right? When there is something uh, important, uh, there are people that you value or occasions that you value, what do you do? Right? You make a plan, now, when, I, when I'm at home by myself and I'm just eating dinner on my own, I don't, I don't plan. I just go to the fridge, go to the pantry, and grab, you know, whatever is there, right? But it, when, you know, when we were planning for our wedding, we didn't just, like, show up on the day of the wedding and hope that everyone shows up, hope there's some food and a band and, you know, a venue that will have us, right? You take time and energy and effort to plan for things that are important, for people who are important to you. It's not to say you can't have hospitality that is spontaneous. You certainly can. But, but in, 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 certain, in things like this, you, you, it, our planning shows our love, shows our care. And what we see in Ephesians 1 is that the Father has planned for you to be a part of his family since forever. Right? And what that means for you and for me and for us together is that God's blessing isn't just arbitrary. Right? His love for you is not an accident. Right? It is intentional. It is purposeful, right? It means that you were not an afterthought, right? The Father has seen you and had you in mind even before the world's foundation. And um, I don't know about you, but for, for me, that is just like a deep balm to uh, my insecurity. <laughs> I was joking. I, I've, uh, some of you know uh, Ava Lai, who's my teammate. Um, she's a dear friend and, and partner in, in ministry at RUF. I, I was joking before that, you know, I'm just, you know, happy to be a warm body who can fill in um, and I was joking around, but actually, in some ways, that is deeply my insecurity, that, uh, that I'm just, you know, kind of around, that I'm, uh, you know, does anybody actually see me? Does God see me? Do, do people know when I'm struggling? Do, does anyone care that I'm struggling? Right, and this passage tells us, yes, God sees you. He knows you. He's known you since before even you were born. Right, you are in the Father's plan of blessing. Right, the Father has planned this blessing. But it is accomplished by God the Son. And this is what Paul talks about in verses 7 through 8. Right? In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And this is sort of this like shorthand uh, you know, summary of, of what happens for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Right? He's saying on account of Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection, those who put their trust in Jesus receive the blessing that was due to the Son. Right? Now, now, why would you or I or anyone need this blessing? Well, let me ask you just one question. What do you do when you have failed? Right? And I don't just mean like you're the test in middle school that you, you know, got a D on or an F on or whatever. Like, what do you do when you fail yourself morally or you fail a friend 
or you fail God? What do you do in that moment? And I think, you know, without having any of us name, name these things, if, if we're honest and sitting in the depth of our heart, we have failed significantly. We have done things that our younger selves would be horrified to know. Right? You have lied. You have cheated. We've just become okay looking down on others or maybe even just ignoring other people in need. And so what do you do with those failures when you are convicted by them? Well, Paul wants you to go to Jesus. He says you don't need to beat yourself up or try to, to fix it in some, some way or, or make it better on your own. He's saying Jesus Christ has paid the cost for your failures. He gave up all of his life on the cross so that you could have the fullness of eternal life. Right? You broke it, I broke it, but Jesus bought it. Right? He has bought you back. As, as Paul says, he has redeemed you from your sin by his free grace. Right? You or I, we, we cannot earn this blessing. We did not earn this blessing. Right? You may have earned your way into college or into the job you have. But you could not earn God's favor. And yet, to failures like me and like you, he gives it freely. He gives this blessing. And, and Paul, in some ways, is even sharing a little bit of his own experience, his own story, right? If you remember who Paul was, he was this Jewish supremacist who had killed Christians. And God took that person and made him the missionary to the Gentiles. Right, right. The, the, the supremacist becomes the, the, the one who's now leading the Gentiles. It's amazing. It's this beautiful testimony. Right? The blessing that God the Father had planned has been and is being accomplished by and through the Son, Jesus. And then that amazing blessing is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit sometimes, uh, as, as one theologian called him, the, the shy member of the Trinity. Um, he's sort of you know, in, always at work, but maybe in the background. Um, but verses 13 through 14, right, Paul says the Spirit is this sort of seal and first portion of God's blessing, right? And if you think again, like about in old times, right, a king who sent out their decree on parchment or whatever they sent it out on, uh, what would they do? They would maybe pour some wax on it and then they had their, their ring and they would put a, sa- a uh, stamp or seal uh, on that decree, right? And this was meant to authenticate and to guarantee that what is contained within is true. It is from the king. It bears his authority. It bears his uh, veracity. Right? And so uh, God is giving us his presence. God is giving us himself uh, as, the, as the spirit to authenticate and assure us of his love. Right? To authenticate and assure for us his work. To serve as this down payment for an even greater blessing that is to come uh, with the eternal life that God is bringing for us. Right, so the gospel, our story together, is a story of blessing. But it's also a story of belonging. It's a story of blessing and belonging. And I promise this is a shorter point. <laughs> um, but look, here's the deal, right? If you are a Christian, then you first and fundamentally belong to Jesus. Right, the, the Heidelberg Catechism, some of you know, what, what is your only hope in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. But, but that, that sort of, that vertical belonging to Jesus is one that has horizontal implications, right? For our relationships with, with Christ and for our relationships with, with one another. And again, if you were listening to this passage, you, you heard blessing said over and over again at the beginning. But hopefully you also heard this phrase, in Christ, or in Jesus, or in Him, 
or in the beloved, right? I think it, it shows up about 11 times in this passage, right? In Christ you were chosen. In him you were redeemed. In him you were adopted. In him you received an inheritance, right? And he's saying you have been brought into union with Jesus Christ so that, that now everything that is true of Jesus is true uh, of you. Maybe not ontologically, but in terms of uh, the blessing that is yours, but that also brings us into relationship with everyone else who is also in Jesus, right? And so what that means is that the Bible really has no category for like the, the, the sort of the lone wolf Christian, the sort of the one-man wolf pack. That's like not a thing that the Bible has a category for, right? This, is, this here is not a, just a bunch of individuals kind of free-floating around. It is a collective union, right? Paul is everywhere in our passage using corporate language, Right? God has blessed us in Christ, in verse 3. Verse 7, we have redemption. Right? And even when he uses you, it is, it is the second person plural. Uh, this is where coming from Virginia can be helpful. We, we, we say y'all. Uh, we, don't, we don't say that here in New York, but we say that in Virginia. Right? Y'all, verse 13, together, we're sealed in the Holy Spirit. Right? God is saying this is this corporate thing that God is doing. And here's, uh, again, the theologian John Stott again. He says, here's what he says. To be in Christ is to be personally invitedly united to Jesus as branches are to vine and members to the body and thereby also to Christ's people. For it is impossible to be part of the body without being related both to the head uh, and to the other members. To be a Christian in essence is to be in Christ, one with him and one with his people. Paul said, you are brought to Jesus, into Christ, and into this family for one another. Right? Now, what purpose were we brought together? And Paul says in verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before God the Father. Right? As people who belong to each other, as people who belong to Jesus, right? we don't just sort of talk about it. We start to live like it, to be about it. Right? If it is true, then we start to live like it is true. Right? And so what would it look like for us? What would it look like for the church in New York City? What would it look like for Emmanuel Church to be a community of blessing and belonging in our corner of the world? Or, or to continue to be, I should say, a, a church of blessing and belonging. Not, not to say that that hasn't been going on. But what would this look like in light of our passage here? Um, well, just a couple of brief thoughts. Um, and I think sort of looks, it looks like something internally and then, and then outwardly. Um, I think inwardly, uh, we become people individually and as a group who welcome and value those um, who are not like us, who have different interests, who have different stories. Right? We start to think about this community of the church as not something that is just like nice to have, uh, but it is something that we need to have. And, and if you are here and, and you are, uh, or you're online and you're a Christian and you are longing for Christian friends, I want you to hear, I, that is a great and beautiful longing. And I hope that your first prayer request, if you feel like that is something that you want to be deepened, is that, that, that God would bring people into your life to share your joys and to share your struggles. And that, that you would also think and expect that this church, this community would be the place, uh, the means by which he would provide that. Right? It can be so easy to, to give ourselves into the, the, the busyness of the, the hum of the city to say, like, I've just got so much going on right now. And, and I'm sure there's some truth to that, but, but that also is just the, the reality of living in this place. And so what does it look like to think, what would it, how will I find people here who I can share my struggles with and who I can take on their burdens as well? 
Right? Inwardly, it means we begin to look in the family of church for people to share life with. And outwardly, I think it means that we become people who extend invitations freely. Right? The way that we get from the triune God of love to being uh, a people of love, a church of love, is through each of us. And, and I think about this a lot, and I, and I tell my students all the time, you know, when, when I have a conviction about my neighbor or my coworker or my friend, maybe I should, like, invite them to Bible study or church or something, and I sort of, like, sit on that. Like, what I've actually done is, is I have made the decision for them. Right? I've, like, robbed them of the dignity of, of responding, <laughs> of choosing for themselves. Right? I've, I've sort of chosen for them. I said, oh, no, no, you, you wouldn't want this. Like, who knows? Who knows? Anyone may be one invitation away from finding life with Jesus Christ and in his family here in the church. Uh, there was a movie that came out a couple years ago, The, uh, the Green Book, uh, Mahershala Ali, uh, Viggo Mortensen. And uh, Viggo Mortensen's character basically is driving Mahershala Ali's character uh, around the South and he's kind of his like driver and bodyguard. Uh, and at one point they're staying in a hotel room together and uh, you know, Viggo is sort of imploring um, Herschel Ali's character to, um, you know, like, hey, you should maybe be, consider being reconciled to your brother, you know, like, family's important, and, um, you know, Herschel Ali basically says, like, look, you know, my brother knows where I am, he knows where to find me, he can come find me, when he's ready to move, like, I'll be here, and, um, you know, Viggo Mortensen says this, he looks at him, he says, hey, man, look, the world is full of lonely people waiting for someone else to make the first move. Tony Lip, uh, wisdom from the words of Tony Lip. The world is full of other people, lonely people, waiting for someone else to make the first move. And I think what happens is when the story of the gospel takes root in our lives, right, we, the church, become a community of first movers. Right? Not waiting for others to just come in the doors, but those who are, are outwardly focused, eyes open, seeing the needs around us, inviting and welcoming others in. Right? As people who are blessed by Christ and belong to him, we long to see others come to know that truth as well. Well, let me just wrap up with one a very short story. Um, I don't know if any of you have any um, friends or, or family members <clears throat> who are uh, particularly good storytellers. Um, my wife's grandfather, who passed away a couple years ago, was that person in her family. Uh, my wife, uh, her dad is the youngest of six. She is one of 19 first cousins in her family, and so pretty, pretty large family, um, and uh, they have this like weird thing where they like actually like each other, and they enjoy getting together. Uh, no, but it's actually really beautiful. It's, it's, it's crazy, but it's really fun, and the first family trip, uh, the Newell family that I went on, um, we, were, we were together, and about the middle of the week, um, we, were, we sat in some big, you know, like room together for dinner, and, you know, Brittany's grandfather, Fi, stood up, and he, you know, taps the glass, and he begins to tell this story. And, and the story that he tells is of uh, himself and his family. And so he tells the story of meeting his wife, Noel, uh, you know, at that point, 60, almost 60 years earlier in college. And he tells the story of them getting married and starting to have kids very quickly. And about 10 years into their marriage, uh, they're on the brink of divorce. They're miserable, like things are just going awful. Um, alcoholism is, is starting to creep in. And somebody invited Fi, he worked at the Pentagon uh, in D.C., somebody invited him to a Bible study. Um, and he heard the gospel. Uh, and the Lord grabbed his heart. And he became a Christian. And, and obviously that did not fix all of his problems overnight. But it was a reorientation. 
and one that, that, that from that point, growth uh, began to happen in his personal life and in their family. Right? Grace entered their family system for the first time. Forgiveness entered their family system for the first time. Right? God got a hold of them and, and then sort of five, went from there and he just told on story after story of God's grace. And he went on for about 20 minutes. Right? Now, why, why did he do this? Why did, why did he share this story with his entire family? Well, it was, it was purposeful. It was to say, guys, this is where we've come from. This is what God has done in our midst. We could have been in a much different place, but by God's grace, by his work, here is what he has done in our family. Here is who we are. This is our story. This is not just my story. This is our story that we are called to inhabit. And that's why we're given Ephesians 1, friends, that this gospel story we would own it, we would see it, we would treasure it as our story, that you and I and we are blessed by the triune God in order that you would belong to Christ, in order that we would belong to each other. So friends, would we go out from here owning the story, delighting in it, delighting in one another? Let's pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, we need a sense of your truth. We need a sense of this gospel story. Um, Lord, it is so easy for me to walk away from here and just to live life uh, on my own as if I am only responsible to myself. Um, and yet, Lord, I, th I pray that this is the deep beauty of belonging to Christ, being found in you, um, would captivate our hearts, um, Lord, that individually we would be so enamored by the fact that you have known us and loved us from before time began, that you've worked on our behalf on the cross and through your resurrection, Lord God, and that by your Spirit you have applied that truth to our lives. Uh, Lord, I pray that that truth would resonate with us today and this week. Um, and I pray that it would be continuing to develop uh, in this community um, a place where the, uh, the grace uh, of your son Jesus is not just heard about, is not just uh, talked about, but is experienced tangibly. So Lord, we thank you for your work here uh, in and through Emmanuel and pray that it would continue by your grace and by your spirit. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Uh, amen.